Uh, good to see you guys. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we are in a series on uh, what we're calling spiritual formation. And so if you're new or it's been a minute, uh, I know some of you have been out. You checked out with the snow the last couple weeks, and now you're checking back in with us. Good to see you. Um, I always feel bad for introverts on days like this. I'm sorry. Uh, it's so crowded. Uh, and the irony of the fact that we're about to talk about silence and solitude with loud microphones and buzzing electric uh, is, is not lost on me. But we, uh, we've been talking really since the fall about spiritual formation, this idea of practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. And uh, when we talk about practicing the way of Jesus or apprenticeship to Jesus or discipleship, what we mean is uh, learning to, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And so this first uh, kind of set of practices in January, um, we call it Sabbath way of life, is one of the first steps towards being with Jesus is making room, all right, to be with Jesus. And uh, we know how difficult that can be for us in a, in a world that's uh, noisy and a world that's wordy. We live in like this very noisy, wordy world. Um, and, and so uh, the idea of Sabbath way of life, definition, we'll put it up here on the screen for you to see, slowing down to create space for regular rhythms of resting in God and in his grace. And so the first two weeks we talked about Sabbath um, and a Sabbath way of life, and I encourage you to check that out. Uh, these last two weeks we're talking about the practices of silence and solitude, probably the most needed uh, in this series and yet the, the least valued in the kind of the cultural moment in which we live, especially in the church. Really undervalued. So there's, there's a lot of conversation happening, not just inside the church, but outside the church about the desire for silence and solitude. There's kind of this uh, pull that we're experiencing culturally uh, towards uh, silence and solitude. But, and, and yet we live in a culture that makes it very difficult for us to, um, to encounter true silence. Like we don't even know what that is. That for some of us is just turning down the noise, but that's not silence. Uh, solitude uh, feels impossible. Um, there are all kinds of cultural challenges. Books being written about uh, the, the need for silence, uh, kind of the desire for silence. Um, but for us, it's just, it's become normal, right? We kind of, we've normalized a noisy, wordy world, and it's hard for us to imagine anything different. It's hard to imagine having tr encountering true silence. Uh, as living in the city, one of the only times I ever experience tr what I would think is true silence uh, is when it snows. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I get up in the mornings on Sundays uh, and about, about 5 o'clock and get out to get my sermon ready, and I go to Starbucks as soon as it opens there in my neighborhood. And, uh, and two weeks ago, I walked outside. It just snowed seven inches, and it is beautifully silent. It dampens all the noise, right? And it's this beautiful landscape of just silence and solitude. It's like a sanctuary of solitude outside. But uh, many people are writing about this need that we have. One of the more interesting books that I came across recently was by a, a guy named Garrett Kaiser. He wrote a book called The Unwanted Sound of Nearly Everything You Want. It's a really fascinating look at all kinds of things, right? This book, uh, he talks about the history of noise and how kind of like post-industrial revolution, uh, automat automated noise or kind of uh, non-human, non-organic noise begin to pick up and and, and it's a really fascinating, it's like a timeline of noise there. Uh, he, he's created his own personal noise code, 
where he talks about like how to deal uh, with noise. He sees noise even as a justice issue. He talks in the book about how noise negatively impacts the most vulnerable among us. Think about the hearing disabled. Think about children. Think about minorities. There's all kinds of studies that link noise levels to uh, poverty and to all kinds of negative outcomes culturally. But he kind of just, he, he, I love the phrase he coins in the book. He says, we live in loud America. <laughs> he says, the United States of America is the loudest country in the world, right? Any, any, any culture that is aspiring to, to be like America, he says, never gets quieter. It, it always gets noisier. The volume continues to crank. Here's what he, one of the quotes from this book. He says, loud noise hates nature and nurture alike. Certain species of birds fail to learn their mating songs and therefore to reproduce in noisy environments. As early as 1975, researcher Arline Bronzaft found that children on the train track side of a New York public school were lagging a year behind their classmates on the other side of the building and learning to read. Even relatively low levels of noise can interfere with conversations at 55 to 60 decibels. The price of making ourselves heard is a loss of nuance, inflection, vocal stamina, in every sense a loss of voice. Noise has been linked to heart disease, high blood pressure, low birth weight, gastrointestinal disorders, headaches, fatigue, insomnia, in short, to nearly every known byproduct of stress. Anti-stress medications are actually tested by exposing experimental subjects to loud sounds. Noise deafens us, orally, and there is strong evidence to suggest morally as well. People subjected to high levels of noise are less likely to assist strangers in difficulty, less likely to recommend raises for workers, more likely to administer electric shocks to other human subjects. There's actually a lot of studies that even link uh, some of the uh, malpractices, uh, even accidental things that are happening in hospitals to the loud volumes of noise that are affecting doctors' and nurses' abilities just to think, right? Um, and so there's this desire for um, silence and solitude, and yet there seems to be, uh, it, it just seems to be impossible for us to experience it. Some would even call it a luxury. There's a great uh, phrase that was coined in the Atlantic a couple years ago called the luxury of silence. If you're familiar with Jane Austen, it's, it's a reference from one of her uh, liter literary works. And here's what they say in this article. Silence is much more than the homage we offer ignorance, the abashed confession we sigh out of shame, the prayer we address to the ineffable. Today, silence is also a commodity, one bought and sold at prices rivaling our most sought-after consumer goods. Let us have the luxury of silence, Jane Austen writes in Mansfield Park. Unfortunately, the cost of that luxury is increasingly beyond the means of most shoppers, and most surcharges for silence now profit those who have produced the noise we seek to escape. Think about noise-canceling headphones. Think about air, the, the irony of airlines that also have quiet lounges <laughs> over the deafening roar of a 747 engine right, that they've created. So we live in a, in a cultural moment where it's hard uh, and, and it makes it impossible, seemingly, for us to experience silence and solitude. There's also social challenges with trying to experience silence and solitude, right? Um, the reason that some of us have a hard time being quiet is because it's just awkward, right? It's awkward to not talk, and some of us feel the unease, and, uh, and, and silence invites us into that space of conversation where we're not sure, what are they thinking of? Like, you ever encountered somebody that's really quiet, and you just sit down and have coffee with them, and you're like, 
I feel like they're looking into my soul. You know, like, this is so awkward. It's so weird. And so we filled the silence with, with anxious, compulsive words, right? We have to say something because uh, we're not sure what they're thinking about us. We want, in that way, words are a way to try to control our image and how others perceive us. There's a guilt that can arise from trying to pull back, right? You ever said to somebody, hey, I'm going on a silent retreat or I'm going to spend some time in solitude. And they're like, huh, must be nice. You know, like there's this kind of guilt and shaming that we do with one another when people actually try to pull back. And, and one of the social realities I think we see is that when I pull back from society, when I pull back from relationships, um, that means I pull back from you. Now you're forced to deal with you instead of making me deal with you. You're forced to confront your own demons instead of projecting those things on me. There's, there's a dynamic that's created. There's, there's this kind of interconnectedness, and when somebody disrupts that, it kind of threatens the social fabric of groups of people, right? And so there's this hurting effect, this social pressure to stay hyper-connected and wordy and noisy all the time. But it's not just cultural and it's not just social it's also internal, right? It's personal. There's something inside of us that is terrified of silence, that is terrified of being alone. Kaiser goes on to note in his book, I think the most fascinating part of the book is when he talks about this internal challenge that we experience, this internal chatter, confusion. He says, we are all conflicted and confused. If the intellectual revolutions of the last hundred years have meant anything, they have meant that. Nothing is quite so clear as we'd like it to be. There's an increasing complexity, he says, to life that's come with the information age. If each of us could hear the sounds inside his or her own mind, would they sound more like music or noise? If your mental process could be rendered as an audio track, would it sound more like a piano sonata or a demolition derby? Demo derby right here, right? I believe, he says, my track would sound more like noise. Signals going every which way, discordant notes playing at the same time, screech, feedback, reverb. Stations all mashed together, blocks of white noise fleetingly broken by snatches of rock and roll. I'm so shattered. Now, I don't know if that resonates at all with you. He says there's this internal noise inside of us that we want to avoid, and so we push it down. We, we try to squeeze it out. Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician and Christian philosopher, said all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own room. There's a great interview a couple uh, uh, years ago um, by Louis C.K., the comedian, and uh, he was uh, talking to Conan O'Brien, and Conan O'Brien asked him a question about uh, cell phones with his children, and he said, are you going to let your kids have cell phones? And so Louis C.K., basically says no, and he launches off into this kind of tirade, this rant about um, how cell phones and technology have kind of dehumanized us, and especially children and teenagers, their ability to experience empathy and feel connected with one another and compassion. There's lots of research in that. But I found it fascinating as he began to describe this phenomenon uh, of wanting to avoid what's inside of us. He, he plums, like, just like a prophet, kind of plums the depths of the human condition in a way that I find most Christians aren't even able to articulate. Here's what he says, just a brief little snippet. Underneath everything in your life, there is that thing, that empty forever empty. You know what I'm talking about. Just that knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. You know it's down there, and sometimes when things clear 
away, you're not watching it. You're in your car and you start going, oh no, here comes that I'm alone, like it starts to visit you. You know, this, just the sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. So you're driving and then you go, ah, 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 that's why we text and drive. <laughs> I look around pretty much 100% of people driving or texting. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so the forever empty, the sadness of life. We are terrified of silence and solitude. And maybe the reality, even for Christians, is that we're terrified of being alone with God. I don't know if you've ever been out, again, for coffee or maybe lunch with somebody that you don't know very well, and there's just that awkwardness of not having the relational uh, kind of cachet with them. And so you're struggling to kind of keep conversation going, but you're just wondering, like, how long am I going to be trapped in this meeting? How do I get out of this meeting? And maybe they're talking and talking and talking, and you're like, you know, faking and pretending like you're really into the conversation, but you are just dying, you know, trying to stay connected. I wonder if that is somewhat of an analogy for how many of us feel with God. Like, if I really had time alone, what would I say? What does God think of me? Who am I? Does God really love me? Does he care about me? What if he were to speak to me and give me a word? So let me just, um, I want to lay out from the story here uh, in just a minute, this, this journey of silence and solitude. So we have this longing for silence and solitude, and yet we find it very difficult to enter in on a regular basis, culturally, socially, uh, kind of interpersonally, uh, inside of ourselves. Let me define the terms here, and then we'll jump into the story. Um, when we talk about sol- solitude, we're, ta- we're not talking about going out and being utterly alone. Like, that's impossible, right, in America. We're talking about uh, withdrawing from the presence of others, biblically speaking, withdrawing from the presence of others to be ourselves with God. So we're not just being alone, we're alone with God. That's the idea of solitude. And then silence kind of intensifies that solitude. It kind of completes or fulfills our solitude. It, it closes off our souls from sounds, whether noise or music or words, so that we may better still the inner chatter and the clatter of our noisy hearts and be increasingly more attentive to God. This is a definition from Richard Foster, a great writer of spirituality in the Christian tradition. Henri Nouwen uh, has a great little book um, where he describes this. It's all about silence and solitude, and here's what he says. Uh, Solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. Dallas Willard, the great Christian philosopher, one more here, says this, solitude frees us, actually. The normal course of day-to-day human interactions locks us into patterns of feeling and thought and action that are geared to a world set against God. Nothing but solitude. That's a radical statement. Nothing but solitude can allow the development of a freedom from the ingrained behaviors that hinder hinder our integration into God's order. He's saying you are trapped in a way of being in the world, a way of feeling or maybe denying your feelings, a way of thinking or maybe denying your thoughts, a way of acting or maybe denying action that sets you against the kingdom of God, just going, picking up your feet and going along with the flow of kind of the cultural moment that we live in. 
He says, you're a prisoner. You're not free. These things are embedded. They're ingrained. There is a, psychologists would call this a learned helplessness. There is a learned helplessness of living in this world that sets us on a course that does not uh, move us towards the life that the Spirit of God wants for us as followers of Jesus. And so solitude is an opportunity to disrupt that, right? It's a disruptive action. It's an act of resistance against kind of the, the ways we're being deformed in the world and an opportunity to step back and to learn a new way of being in the world as God's beloved children. That's the idea of silence and solitude. And we see that here. So last week, Josh talked about that as a a rhythm in the life of Jesus, this kind of exile and return, this withdraw and engage rhythm that Jesus had in his ministry. You see that over and over and over again in the New Testament Gospels. Uh, Jesus would pull back, and then he would re-engage. And so we, we established the principle what I love about 1 Kings 19, which one uh, Old Testament scholar says is probably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, um, and, and you could say a lot of kind of redemptive history swings and hinges on uh, the book of 1 Kings, and particularly this chapter in 1 Kings 19. Um, but what I love about this, it just brings us into the narrative. and just shows us, like, what does it actually look like to be alone with God and to be kind of uh, captive to this kind of silence? And so I want us to see some of the contours of that. So we have this story in 1 Kings 19. And many of us may be familiar with uh, Elijah. Elijah was a Hebrew prophet in the 9th century. Uh, At that time, uh, Israel was kind of in a civil war, and it was divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom at that time was still faithful to Yahweh. The northern kingdom had kind of fallen into patterns of idolatry and paganism and uh, and in particular, uh, they had a, a royal family, Ahab and, and Jezebel, who were basically sociopaths, um, and they were also pagans. And so they worshipped the god Baal, and Baal uh, had this whole cult, and so they basically, Ahab marries uh, Jezebel, brings her into Israel, and she kind of brings all of her Baal worship, and the seminaries, and the training centers, and the podcasts, and the whole kind of ecosystem of Baal worship into Jezreel, and they set this up as the capital of Baal worship. And so um, in chapter 17, Elijah the prophet is called to go and begin to speak truth to this kind of uh, power that has set itself up, this empire that set itself up against the worship of the one true God. And so in 17, he comes in and he declares a three-year famine, and for three years, there's not a drop of rain on the land. And then in chapter 18, there's this kind of like east side, west side throwdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, 450 prophets uh, against Elijah. Uh, not, that's kind of funny. It's on Mount Carmel, which was the sin. Take no allusions to this if you live, sorry, uh, Denise and Stephen. Uh, but Mount Carmel was kind of like ground zero for pagan worship. That was the center of Baal worship. And so essentially, Elijah symbolically, metaphorically, says, I'm, I'm going to throw down on, at the center of this worship, and we're going to determine who's the one true God. And so uh, God rains down fire. It's a long, really cool story. God rains down fire, and uh, the prophets are slaughtered. Elijah comes out victorious, right? So we have the high point of Elijah's ministry, followed by the absolute lowest point of his life. Like Elijah's is thinking like, yes, God's going to show up. He's going to, like this whole nation's going to be converted. I'm going to ride into the temple or I'm going you know, to ride in to uh, the promised land on a horseback and everybody's going to be, you know, ticker tape parades and excitement. And then in verse 19, Jezebel says, so may the gods do to me and more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She 
threatens to kill him. There's no repentance. There's no turning back. So Elijah goes from the highest point of his life to the lowest. Now, I don't know if you can resonate with that at all. Like you're riding high and things are going well, and you're just like, yes, Jesus, God, you know, everything's amazing, and then you get on Instagram and like life falls apart, or you get that text from one of your parents and life falls apart, you go to the doctor, and all of a sudden you are at your utter lowest. And you're like, what happened? So Elijah, verse 3, was afraid. He was afraid. And so he arose and he ran for his life. So I want to talk just for a few minutes about the journey of silence and solitude. And just point out some of the movements here that are uh, common patterns in how people tend to experience uh, silence and solitude. The first thing we see is withdrawing, right? Withdrawing. Often uh, situational factors drive us into silence and solitude. Most of us do not willingly go. We go kicking and screaming, right? So it is fear for his life that drives Elijah out into the wilderness, that drives him out into the desert. And I argue for most of us, that's what happens. Like for some of you, you're just like natural contemplatives. Like this is downstream discipline for you. You're an introvert. You love time alone. You love to be with God in silence and solitude. It's like your thing. You don't like noisy places. You don't like noisy people. You're just kind of drawn to nature. Good for you, right? But like for the rest of us, it's, it's an upstream practice. It is so hard to get quiet and to be Still, we have to be shoved off a cliff, right? We have to be pushed uh, into the abyss, is what I call it, the abyss of silence and solitude. We're driven there by anxiety, right? We have no other option but to collapse before silence and solitude. We're driven there by shame. We're driven there by guilt. We're driven there by sadness. We're driven by divorce, by situational factors. We're driven there by abuse, we're driven there uh, but when we lose our jobs. We're driven there by anger and resentment and frustration. So I just want to say that to say, um, wherever you are, it's okay. Right? Like, not all of us are ready for this journey. Like, for some of you, are like, silence and solitude, that sounds miserable, right? That sounds like something old people do, okay? I'm, I'm 23, and I'm excited about striking out of the adventure of life. Okay, good for you, right? Awesome. That's amazing, okay? You cannot be pushed into this or driven into this. You must be drawn, right? You must be wooed or violently kind of pushed into this. So file it away, and there'll come a time when this will make sense. But for some of you, you feel the pull, you feel this push-pull dynamic. You want it, and yet you have no idea how to get into it, but you want it. You long for it. And if that's you, just pay attention to those desires. Name those desires. Lean into that call to the wilderness. Don't be afraid. So Elijah withdraws. He runs for his life. Verse 4, we see that the second movement is healing, right? He begins to experience healing out in uh, the wilderness. He goes a day's journey into the wilderness, and he just collapses under a broom tree. And he, he, he kind of issues essentially here a suicide note to God. God, kill me, right? Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. And he lays down, and he falls asleep. He collapses under the weight Right? This is kind of Elijah's unburdening. Right, He's carrying the burden not only of himself, but of an entire nation. He's a prophet. Right, He's, he's kind of a, a bearer of the, the, the sins and the suffering of the people that he represents. 
and he collapses under the weight of the physical and mental and emotional and spiritual exhaustion. He's in this space that one author calls uh, being dangerously tired. I don't know if you've ever been dangerously tired. There's good tired and there's dangerously tired. Some of us find ourselves dangerously tired, this place of kind of chronic inner fatigue. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you're checked out, that you're apathetic, that you're sitting in the, uh, you know, like uh, you're, you're curled up in like, you know, in a corner somewhere. You can actually be very busy and yet be dangerously tired. Matter of fact, one of the symptoms of dangerous fatigue is that you are compulsively overworking, that you are compulsively busy, and you can't turn it off. You can't stop. So chronic inner fatigue can manifest as apathy or frenetic activity or escapist behaviors. But I want you to see the first thing that God does when the angel of God shows up, it's really interesting what God does. Notice um, the angel of God uh, doesn't show up and lecture Elijah. Doesn't say, hey man, I got a podcast, you should listen to this. Uh, He doesn't doesn't, uh, tell him to go to a Bible study. Hey man, you just have a lack of faith, you need to get in the word. Read scripture, right? Take two of these and call me in the morning. He he doesn't uh, say, hey, go see a counselor, get into therapy. It's not the first step. He doesn't say, you know what, we need an intervention here, right? Let's get all of our friends together. Let's gather all the heavenly angels together. Elijah's really in a bad place. Let's do an intervention. Let's ambush him, right? None of that. What does he do? He simply says, take a nap, eat, and then take another nap. You need to rest. You are dangerously tired. Pay attention to this. When people are in trauma, the right response, and I don't know if you have like moms or grandmas like this, is not always like, let, you know, let's shake the devil off, you know, like let's plead the blood over, I mean, if, I grew up in the South, there's just, it's weird, I've got like religious baggage, we do weird stuff like that, give them a sermon, you know, like go, go to some kind of Christian uh, ichthus rock concert, no, like pay attention here, we need to be mindful of our bodies, right, of our bodies, paying attention to the basics of sleep, right? We are embodied souls. We don't just have bodies. We are bodies, and they need to be taken care of. And one of the first signs that we're in a bad place spiritually is that our bodies begin to break down, right? Our bodies, uh, because we absorb all the anxiety and all the fear, oftentimes unconsciously, and it begins to manifest in an inability to sleep, an inability to rest, monkey mind, right? Like your thoughts are racing like crazy all over the place. There's a great book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. By a guy, uh, last name is Vanderkolk. And he talks about the effects of trauma on people, that literally we carry the effects of trauma in our bodies for more than a decade. More than a decade, right? Things that happen to us as kids, things that have happened to us as young adults, like they stay with us. They don't just magically leak out of our body and go away. They, they form memories, and then those things get embedded into the way that we kind of see the world, and it can really mess with us. And so what, what I think God is doing here in taking care of these basic physical needs is saying, hey, Elijah, let me, let me take care of you. He's inviting him into what psychologists might call a holding environment right? A holding environment, a place of trust, a place of safety, a place of security and intimacy so that Elijah doesn't have to fix it. He doesn't have to strategize and figure out. He's just allowed to be. That's the invitation here 
from God. And God is beginning the process of holistic healing, mentally, spiritually, physically, relationally. The, the next thing we see is waiting, right? This is a long process. Beersheba was about 100 miles south of Jezreel, and then Horeb is another 200 miles south. And, and it's interesting here to note the time frame, 40 days and 40 nights. He journeys down to the wilderness, down to the desert, and eventually to Mount Horeb. Like, when was the last time when you had a problem, you said, I'm going to go off in a solitude for 40 days and 40 nights? I mean, just the patience here, the waiting, the long, slim, it's basically about seven miles a day. He's walking down into the wilderness. Like, the silence of God is just as astounding as Elijah's silence. God says nothing for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah says nothing for 40 days and 40 nights. Like, do we have the patience to wait on God in the midst of our pain? We have a hard time with painful, difficult emotions, oftentimes as followers of Jesus. We don't know what to do with the sadness. We don't know what to do with the loneliness. We don't know what to do with the anger. It doesn't feel Christian to kind of talk about those things. But God invites us to, to wait on him, to bring those things before him. The next thing we see is naming, right? He names those realities. As he gets into silence, he begins to confess. He begins to talk to God about what he's feeling and how he's experiencing this unburdening. Verse 9, he came to a cave. Many people believe this is this very same cave where Moses hid in the cleft of the rock when God passed him by in Exodus 33, 34, uh, in that section there. He came to this cave, and the word of God came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And whenever God asks a question in the Bible, just so we know, it's not because God needs information. What are you doing here? I didn't expect you to show up. No, God never needs information. It, this is always an invitation, right? An invitation to see something that we're missing, an invitation to, to bring our full selves to God and be honest about where we're at. And Elijah responds, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He's despairing, he's depressed. He, this is just raw, unfiltered, unburdening of his disappointment, his disillusionment, his, uh, his sense of just being alone. Like, that's what happens when we get into these spaces. We get so tunnel vision, right? Like, it's not true. He's not alone. God's going to remind him of that. But it feels like he's alone. And he brings those before God, and he just says it. What do you do with those hard emotions? Things like sadness and fear. And grief, when you get into solitude, those things begin to rise to the surface. They begin to bubble up. Those things that we've pressed down, the grief that we don't want to deal with and remember, the loneliness, the shame, the emptiness. And the thing for us to remember is not to be uh, ashamed of those emotions, not to feel bad about those or to think, well, if I name this before God, he's going to like smite me, you know, he's going to like thunderbolt me. No, whatever is, is just let it be whatever wherever you are you are and you can be nowhere else you can be nothing else and the crazy thing is god knows and he draws near in the midst of those difficult times imagine shaking up a bottle of river water this is kind of what's happening with elijah and and over time the sediments begin to settle and he's forced to come face to face 
with all the things that have been buried, all the things that have been lost, all the dreams that have died. And that's the same place that we find ourselves in solitude, which is why we're so afraid of it. Again, Henri Nouwen says this, in solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract me, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, my distractions, so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. But that's not all. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. They're like, I do not want to go to solitude now, right? Like, it, but, it, but it's real. That's what happens. We're honest. And it's okay. Just let it be what it is. And then uh, Elijah moves to a place of discerning. As he owns where he's at before God, he begins to discern God's will for his life, his purpose for his life. God begins the process of reorienting Elijah to what's true and what's real. Again, there's this invitation, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says it twice. Like in in Hebrew, that's an intensification, a repetition means pay attention to this. And again, God doesn't rebuke Elijah. How dare you think that way? He doesn't call him to repent. He just simply reveals himself, and he says, go out and wait for my presence. What you need, Elijah, in this moment is not information. What you need is the power and presence of God to flood your soul. What you need is the love of God to reorient you to what's most true, You see, Elijah was driven into the desert, at least in his mind, by fear. But notice, he was also drawn by God's invitation. He was drawn by God's invitation. And here's the reality that we come face to face with about the heart of God for us, is that God desires us before we ever desire him. And he will draw us unto himself. God desires us before we desire him. Underneath our fear is actually an invitation for desire and intimacy with God. Where we're escaping for our lives, God is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you discernment. I will reorient you to what's true and real and good. And that's the whole thing about Mount Horeb, right? Mount Horeb is is representative of encounter with God. There's all kinds of allusions here back to the life of Moses, right? But this this idea is the desert and the wilderness is the place of encountering God. Yes, it's a place of struggle, but it's also where we meet God. We meet God in silence and solitude. He is there, and he waits for us to come to him. He draws us to himself, and he speaks to us. We see here with a still, small, quiet voice. see the kindness of God, the tenderness of God, the mercy of God. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. He's not in all these dramatic signs, the whirlwind, right? The voice comes after those things. He says, I'm going to be found in this quiet whisper of a place. See, most of the time when we're struggling in life and the inner chaos seems to be taking over and destroying us and sabotaging us, 
What we need is not more information. We have a lot of education in this room, right? We have a lot of people with lots of head knowledge. What we need is for that knowledge to settle into our hearts. We need to give space for those things to settle. And what we need is not information, but the presence and the power and the transforming work of God in our lives. And that's what he's doing in silence and solitude. He is putting us in touch with the deep movements of the Spirit in our souls, speaking what's true to us and saying, hey, don't listen to those other voices. Listen to my voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow their shepherd. That's the invitation for discernment, to see God in the midst of our pain. And then God begins to give him a mission, and he returns. Right? He returns back to his work of being a prophet. God sends him out in verses 14 to 21. And he sends him out to anoint this pagan king. And he gives him this assistant, Elijah, right? Because God's doing something here that's so much bigger than, um, than what Elijah thinks. He's saying, Elijah, look up. There's 7,000 people. By the way, some of them not Christian, right? Like we do this thing sometimes in the church where we're like, we're the only ones, you know? Like we're the only ones doing it right. We're the only ones doing gospel-centered. We're the only ones doing church right. And God says, I'm going to use pagans to bring about my purposes, you are not alone. I have people, he says to Paul and Acts, that are in this city that are my people. Keep on doing what you're doing. And he sends him back out to engage. He strengthens him to return to his prophetic ministry. Now, instead of discouragement and fear, he sends him back out with wisdom and with courage and with a renewed sense of God's presence. And so pay attention. This is the pattern in Scripture, right? Solitude and engagement. We need both. The call is not retreat and become a monk, right? The call is retreat for a time and then re-engage. If, if you don't, you'll have a forced silence and solitude at some point in your life. It's midlife crisis, right? Health problems. But we need this word in the church, especially a church like ours that cares so much about community and being connected with one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who we love at this church, and we've talked a lot about his books, Life Together and Community, and this great vision of community. He has a warning for those of us who love being connected and love community, like extroverted and want to connect with people. He says this in the same book, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. We need solitude. God invites us into the wilderness right where we live. So how do we do that? I want to close. How do we do that? I think it's going to look different for everyone, just as we spoke about this last week, it's going to look different for everyone. This week in your practice guides and missional community life, uh, we have resources for you to begin to step into some basic practices to experiment with silence and solitude. I want to encourage you to check that out. We talk in there about little solitudes, right, throughout the day, finding uh, solitude is not just a place you go, right? It's kind of a, it, it, it's what Richard Foster calls a portable sanctuary of the heart. It's a, it's a disposition of the soul. You can be in a crowd of people and find solitude and silence, right? So it's not necessarily going to a place, but it's just finding little pockets of time to, to retreat, to pull back. Maybe it looks like uh, daily silence for you. Uh, some members of our church are practicing getting up in the morning. Uh, I want to encourage you to listen. We have a podcast this week from two busy young moms in our church, Katie Mays and Ashley Binger, 
who talk about uh, taking a silent retreat in the midst of their busyness of motherhood. And, and they, they talk about how, the, how that has benefited their life coming back as mothers. So, for instance, Katie was saying that she started a practice where first thing up in the morning, the kids, and these are young kids, right? They have, uh, they're, they're loud and obnoxious like all of our kids. And, um, and they now start their mornings with 15 minutes of silence and just reading books and sitting out in their pajamas. And she was talking about how transformational just that little pocket of silence has been for all of their family. It's a gift that we bring back from solitude with us as we begin to see the world differently. We show up differently in the world as leaders and as parents, as businessmen and women, uh, right? And we can carry the fruit of that, sol- that solitude back into our lives. And so we give you some ideas there for practicing that together in community. But I just want to encourage you to experiment. Like for me, it looks like once a month pulling back and having a day of solitude. And for me, that looks like a, a whole day, right? Which was terrifying a couple years ago and now I long for it. It's a, it's a day of looking back uh, over my last 60 days and saying, how's it going? How am I feeling? How am I doing? What's happening? How are my relationships? And journaling. It's a day of scripture, heavy scripture intake and heavy prayer and meditation. It's a look inward. How am I doing? How am I feeling? What's happening? What's stirring up inside of me? And it's a look forward. God, what do you have for me in the future? God, help me to move towards the future with faith and with compassion and hopefulness and love, believing that uh, what you have for me is good and right and true. So I want to close. We have uh, a baptism coming up here. I want to close, but I just want us to take a moment to pause. So let's put away our stuff. Take a moment to pause as we uh, transition here to communion. And I just want you to just take a moment of silence. Be still and know that I'm God. Just ask God, God, what, what do you have for me today? God, what's stirring up in me when I take a moment to pause and reflect? What are you inviting me? God, God is saying to us the same thing that he said to Elijah. What are you doing here? What are you doing here, Brandon? What are you doing here, Josh? Let's listen for his voice. Maybe it's an opportunity to just draw near to God and ex- express how you're feeling, to name some realities. Maybe there is some repentance that needs to happen. You know, there's some sin in your life that needs to be confessed. It's keeping you uh, from experiencing the life that God wants for you. Jesus died. He rose again. He lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we should die, rose again to purchase this new life for us. And that's the heart of communion, is that God's body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us to bridge the gap between us and God and bring us back to our Father. God is so tender and he's so kind and he's so patient. So I want to just take a moment to reflect on that reality. And then if you're a follower of Jesus, you're an apprentice of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and receive communion. Receive your Father's embrace. Receive your Father's assurance that he loves you and that he's for you. And because of the faith that he's given you and the grace that he continues to extend to you, you can lean into these disciplines, these practices that will help you be more dialed into the reality of who he is. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you just to stay in your seat as others come. We have stations in the front, stations in the back. So let's just take a moment. Let's, let's bring our hearts before God and be still.
pray over us. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into our community. We feel your love for us. Guide us as we think about our day today. Help us to remember all the moments, big and small, this week. Help us to remember moments of kindness, generosity, and how to be thankful for them. Help us to remember moments where we did not listen to your voice. Holy Spirit, lead us to understand what we should ask for forgiveness for today and what behavior we should turn away from and what things we should bring before you, knowing that you are a God of tender kindness and grace and patience and mercy. Help us look look toward tomorrow with the confidence that you will guide and take care of us. May we see you at work once again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to invite you to take communion. We're going to sing a song together. We have a, a quick baptism, and then we'll send you back out. So let's take a moment, and let's take communion together.